All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Titus. Be in Titus chapter 3 this morning. Gary and Tally are out of town. I want to thank Andrew for filling in and the rest of the guys. Really appreciate the ministry of our musicians and those who get here early and set everything up for sound and run the video and all of that. It's really a blessing that allows all of us to join our hearts together in worship. And I've been just, I'm always encouraged and blessed. Kind of have to get myself together before I preach because it's such a blessing. But our text today will be Titus chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read our text, and then we'll pray together. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how it humbles us, how it renews our minds. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. And that you would transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear. You'd give us soft hearts, tender hearts. Um, hearts that are eager to believe and obey all that we see in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, that I would give an accurate presentation of what you have recorded for us in your word, eternal truth passed down from generation to generation that has always purified and nourished and sustained your church. So, Father, be glorified in our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think in the last two years, we've probably talked more about health than we ever have in our lives. Um, we know way more about viruses and treatments and vaccines than probably any of us ever cared to know. Personal health is a big priority. I think people also talk a lot today about mental health. There's a, a rising concern among many, and rightly so, um, to try to figure out what it means to have well-balanced emotions, to have clear thinking. Mental health is a priority for many. I think we all desire healthy relationships, don't we? Relationships that are free from conflict, that are free from manipulation or, or excessive you know, conflict, those sorts of things. So we think about health in all of those categories, but what does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to be healthy as a congregation? In Titus chapter 1, Paul gets right down to business because this is his priority, and he points out that the knowledge of the truth 
accords with godliness. A healthy church is one that loves the truth and lives by it. If you were to ask me to define a healthy church based on what we're seeing in Titus, I think that's a good way to sum it up. A healthy church is one that loves the truth and lives by it. This is, again, Paul's concern for the church on the island of Crete. He wants them to be healthy as a church. So he immediately instructs Titus to appoint healthy leaders in chapter 1. They need leaders who are sound in their character and sound in their doctrine. In chapter 2, he points out that the church needs healthy members who live godly lives both at home and in the church for the sake of the gospel and because of the gospel. So we have all these ethical commands in Titus chapter 2 with this gospel motivation to drive our obedience forward. Well, in chapter 3, Paul continues to instruct the church in what it looks like to be godly, to live a godly life, to be a healthy church, but now his focus gets wider. He's already dealt with with relationships, how we respond to each other in the home and in the church in chapter 2, but now he starts to talk about how we as Christians relate to those who are outside the church, how we engage with people in the world around us. Not only do we need healthy leaders in the church, not only do we need to be healthy members of the church, but we're also called to be humble citizens. That's what we find in verses 1 and 2. But while this letter and this passage are full of all of these instructions, here's the things you need to do. Here's what it looks like to live a godly life. Here's the the commands we are responsible to obey. Paul has a lot of emphasis on what we are to do, but he never loses sight of what Christ has done. So in verses 1 and 2, we have these ethical commands, but verses 3 through 7 lays out the gospel for us. You see, all throughout the book of Titus, good conduct is always tied to the good news. It goes hand in hand. All of Paul's exhortations to us are rooted in the grace of the gospel. It's a right understanding of the gospel that will compel us to demonstrate gracious humility towards all men. That's what we see here in Titus chapter 3. His point here in the text is that the gospel compels us to demonstrate humility towards outsiders. It matters how we behave towards those who are outside the church. While the word humility, I will grant you, is not found in this text. You could reread it again if you want. The word humility is not found there. But I think it's very clear that this text calls us to view ourselves rightly and to treat others accordingly. And this gospel-driven humility, this right assessment of ourselves that leads us to proper engagement with people in the world, this gospel-driven humility is a crucial mark of a healthy church, which is what we want to be. So let's dive into this text this morning. If the gospel compels us to demonstrate humility towards outsiders, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us instruction in verses 1 and 2, instructions that show us humility must be demonstrated towards outsiders. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He starts off by telling Titus, you need to remind them of this, remind them. It implies that this should be something that they already know. It should be something they already understand. It should be something they've heard before, and you likely have as well. But we need to be reminded. We need reminding because some of the things that we're called to are hard for us. Verse 1 tells us we're supposed to demonstrate humility towards authority. 
Humility towards authority. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. What is submission? Submission is a bending of the will. This has to do with our attitude. For these believers, their authority was the local government of Crete. And they were, in that day, representatives of the Roman Empire. These were pagan, cruel, godless leaders. But regardless of whether or not the believers in Titus's church, regardless of whether they liked or agreed with their leaders, Paul says you need to remind them that rebellious resistance to authority is not something that should characterize a godly church, godly believers. While our true king is Jesus, yes, and we see everybody else as just middle management, and our citizenship is in a better country, we nevertheless have a responsibility to humbly submit to those who are in positions of power over us, even if they are unrighteous, and even if they seem undeserving of our respect. If I could remind you of Romans 13, verse 7, where Paul writes, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says here to Titus, remind them, be submissive to rulers and authorities. If submission refers to our attitude towards authority, he follows that up with our actions. Not only are we to be submissive to rulers and authorities, but secondly, we're to be obedient, to be obedient and ready for every good work. You see, our submissive spirit is to be demonstrated by our actions, by doing what is being commanded or requested by our authorities. We have to lay aside our pride, the fact that we don't like being told what to do, and obey. So we pay our taxes, as Jesus said in Mark 12. We obey the traffic laws. As best we can, we follow the law of the land. Remember, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And lawlessness is sin, yes. But lawlessness also means not breaking the law, right? That's got to be part of it. Christians are to be characterized by law-keeping, not law-breaking. And the reason that we are to submit and obey to our human authorities is because this is an expression of our obedience to God. Because it's God who put those rulers there in the first place. Again, going back to Romans 13, looking at verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think Paul understood that whether it's for the believers in Rome or the believers on the island of Crete, that when we recognize that Christ is king, we might start completely disregarding human rulers and authorities. You're not my boss. You didn't die for me and rise again from the grave. Why should I answer to you? But Paul reminds us that these authorities have been established by God. But I want to clarify, this is not an unqualified obedience in every and any circumstance. No. 
Human authority, because it is under God and delegated by God, human authority has limits. There are limits. And because our submission is ultimately to God, we should never break God's law in order to obey a human authority. There will be times when we must obey God rather than man, no matter what the consequences. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are told to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember how they answer. Despite imprisonment, despite beatings, they say, we must obey God rather than man. That takes conviction. It takes courage. There will be times when the authorities can contradict God's moral will. When they command you to do something that is sinful or forbid you to do something that God calls us to do. There will be times when they overstep the assigned limits of their God-given authority. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. There's some things that don't belong to Caesar and Caesar has no claim on those things. So when it comes time to disobey our civil authorities, when it comes time to to not do something they command us to do, or to do something they command us not to do, or to refuse to submit to something they don't have the jurisdiction to call us to do. Note this, that is not an expression of rebellion. It is not a rebellious spirit. It is not lawlessness. It's actually righteous obedience to a higher authority. It's submission to God, first and foremost. That sort of civil disobedience doesn't come from a spirit of pride. It doesn't come from um, a a spirit of, of anger or hostility or independence. It comes from a higher allegiance to Jesus Christ. It comes from a humble spirit of submission to God. If I can just be candid with you, we're, we're in a, over the last two years, a lot of us have been thinking maybe more than we ever have before about when are we required to obey our civil authorities. And without digging too deep into all the issues, I'll just make this simple comment. Too much resistance towards authority by Christians today comes not from our allegiance to Christ, Not from our compulsion to serve and honor God and advance the gospel no matter the cost. It rather comes from our rebellious attitude towards human authority. It comes from independence, pride, and it's the wrong source. That's the wrong source. That's the wrong heart, even for doing things that may be justifiable. And when our actions come from the wrong source, the wrong headwaters, those actions will inevitably carry the flavor of pride and rebellion and not humility. We're to be marked by humility, marked by a spirit of submission and obedience. And when that submission and obedience is given to God, it means we'll obey the authorities he assigns. And when those authorities overstep their bounds and call us to disobey God, We're just going to keep doing what we've always been doing from the beginning, which is obedience and submission to God. So listen, there's a place for civil disobedience. But when our authorities are not calling us to sin, when they're not contradicting God's revealed will, when they're not overstepping their limits as assigned by God, then we're supposed to obey them. We're called to submit to them. We're to demonstrate humility towards those in authority, Paul says in verse 1. But then he gets even broader in verse 2. We're supposed to demonstrate humility towards all men. He says, after telling us to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all 
people. So at this text, at this point in the text, we're starting to see the, the focus sort of broaden out. We see words like every and no one and all people. Now we're talking about not just living under authority, but living among the human race, among all people. Jesus wants a people who are zealous for good works, who are ready to do them. That's what chapter 2, verse 14 says. Jesus died for this, that we would be a people who are zealous for good works. And those good works include how we engage with the people around us. He tells us, verse 2, we're to speak evil of no one. This includes our leaders, by the way, but it expands to everyone. We're not to slander or malign others, even if they act like our enemies. Jesus tells us we're to love our enemies, right? 1 Peter 2.17 says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's something that even includes our speech. James 3 verses 9 through 10 James points out this ironic contradiction. He says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God because they're part of the other political party, because they don't agree with us on some of the things we're really passionate about, because they're in the way, in our community, of us living the way we want to live. James says, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Now, this doesn't mean we're supposed to be naive and never identify error. It doesn't mean we can't point out things that are wrong. Paul does that in chapter 1 with the false teachers. He doesn't pull any punches. But when Paul calls us here to speak evil of no one, he simply means we need to resist the fleshly urge to tear other people down with our words. And we're all too quick to do it. James says that our words, it's like a little spark. It's a small fire that can set all the woods a flame. We're supposed to speak evil of no one. Secondly, he says, avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. Those who quarrel are not so much concerned for what is right. It's not so much a passion for the truth. It's rather an obsession over being right, over winning the argument. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Did you catch that? It's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. But every fool will be quarreling, arguing, relational conflict. Listen, when you find a quarrel, you find pride. You'll find anger. Quarreling is engaging in this relational combat with others, and it lacks grace. That's the problem with it. This lack of grace towards other people with whom we disagree this lack of grace is unacceptable for those who are recipients of God's grace. This doesn't mean we always have to agree with everybody. In fact, it's very possible to disagree and even to discuss our disagreements, even to try to persuade one another, try to change each other's minds. But we can do that without quarreling, without it becoming relational combat, without it being marked by anger and hostility in a win-at-all-costs mentality. It takes a love for truth, but also a love for people and a Christ-like humility to engage with others with whom we disagree without being quarrelsome. Speak evil of no one, Paul says. Avoid quarreling. Third, he says we're to be gentle. Gentleness doesn't imply weakness. It's, it's the ability to control your strength. We, we talked at length about the importance of self-control throughout this book. Gentleness is fruit of the Spirit. 
It's a mark of spiritual maturity. Gentleness, when someone demonstrates gentleness towards another person, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's your coworker, maybe it's that server at the restaurant who brought you cold food. When you demonstrate gentleness, what it shows is that you're so concerned for the well-being of others, that you care about them, that you take great care in how you treat them. A lack of gentleness is a lack of love. We're to be gentle, and we're, finally, he says, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, no matter who they are. Perfect courtesy towards all people, to treat them with dignity, to treat them with respect, no matter who they are. Our treatment of others is not conditional upon their behavior. It's not conditional upon their age, their political party, their ethnicity, their background, their socioeconomic status, their popularity. It's not conditioned on their anything. Whether or not they agree with you on masks and vaccines, whichever side you fall on, on that issue. James tells us we're not supposed to show partiality. We're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So even if you do receive poor service at a restaurant, you don't have a right to be rude. Even if that driver did cut you off, you have no right to retaliate. Even if your spouse is thoughtless, if your child is ungrateful, and if your boss is a jerk, we're supposed to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The fact is, it's hard to treat people this way. It's difficult. And part of the difficulty is because a lot of the times they don't treat us that way. Am I right? I mean, sometimes people make it really hard to show courtesy. They make it very hard to be gentle. They make it very hard to not quarrel. They make it hard to not say things about them to tear them down. So why should we respond like this? Because they don't deserve it. They're starting it half the time, more often than not. Well, Paul gives us the reason in verses three through eight. The reason we are to treat people this way, with this kind of gentleness, with this kind of humility, is because we are no better than they are and we used to be just like them. We need to remember where we came from. Humility must be demonstrated towards outsiders. We see that in verses 1 through 2. But in verses 3 through 8, we see secondly that humility must be shaped by the gospel. The, the humility you show towards other people must be shaped by the gospel. Verses 3 through 8 answer the question why we should treat other people this way. It says, for, there's that little link, it's a logical link. We behave this way towards outsiders for this reason. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We used to be just like them. In the following verses, Paul lays out the gospel of grace and he reminds us where we came from. He talks about our need for grace in verse 3. Our need for grace. He says, we ourselves were once this way. He reminds us of our previous lost condition. Do you remember what it was like before you were saved? Those of you who know Christ, those of you who are following Jesus, maybe it's been for a short amount of time. Maybe it's been for many decades. Many of you can probably remember what life was like before the grace of God had its way. In your heart. Maybe some of you who were saved at a young age, you've grown up in the church, you don't have a previous life before Christ that's much to speak of, but I want you to imagine just for a moment who you would be 
if his grace had never changed your life? Where would your flesh have taken you? What would you be like apart from Christ? Paul includes himself here in this text. He says, we ourselves. He's not just pointing fingers. He says, this is me too. I remember who I was before the grace of God changed me. He saw himself, according to 1 Timothy 1, as the chief of sinners. He says, listen, we need to keep this in perspective. We need to remember who we were, remember where we came from. He says, we were foolish and disobedient. That's depraved mentally and morally. Foolish and disobedient. He says, we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. He says, we were deceived by sin and enslaved to sin. Just like them. He says, we were malicious. We wished evil upon others and tried to bring harm to them. We were envious. We coveted our brother's goods. Hated and hating. He says, our life was marked by hostility apart from God's grace. Listen, this is what human nature looks like apart from God's grace. And it's an ugly picture, isn't it? Verse 3 gives us a pretty ugly portrait of humanity. And Paul says, that's who we ourselves once were. Listen, if you don't remember where you came from, if you're not aware of what it is that you have received from God, then you're going to find it very, very difficult to demonstrate humility towards people who are outsiders. Humility towards those who don't know Christ. Humility towards those who don't believe in his word. Humility towards those that are still darkened in their mind and foolish in their understanding and enslaved to sin. It's going to be hard for you to be humble if you don't realize that that's who you used to be and that's who you would be if it wasn't for the grace of God that's been poured out upon us. We needed grace. Before you think about extending grace, you have to think about how we need grace. Verse 3 shows us our need for grace and verses 4 through 6 lays out this beautiful work of grace that God has done. That's who we were according to verse 3. And how did God treat us? When we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures, malicious, envious, hateful, how did God treat us? Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior Appeared. What a stark contrast to the hateful darkness that we see in verse 3. You have the loving kindness and goodness of God our Savior appearing onto the scene, bursting onto the scene, penetrating the darkness with the grace of salvation. In spite of our foolishness and disobedience, God is good to us. When Jesus came, he came to bring salvation for those who did not deserve it. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, we were acting like all the things in verse 3. Christ died for us. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 4. And verse 5, he saved us. You know, God could have left us to our own devices. He could have appeared to bring judgment and wrath and would have been completely justified to do so. We deserved it. But he came instead to die on the cross in our place and to reconcile hostile humanity to a holy God. And because of that work of grace, we're no longer who we used to be. We've been rescued from sin's power and sin's penalty 
by the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. And that's why Paul keeps referring throughout this book to God as our Savior. He does it in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 10, and here in chapter 3, verse 4. God is our Savior. His grace has appeared to save us. And why did he save us? Paul tells us. Look in verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He didn't save you, Christian, if you're a believer, because of something good he saw in you. He didn't save you because of any merit that you had to offer. He didn't save you because of any worthiness, because of your good behavior. When Paul says he didn't save us because of works done by us in righteousness, he doesn't have in mind the fact that we did that we didn't have quite enough righteousness. No, he's saying we didn't have any at all. Look back at verse 3. What righteousness do you see there? None, okay? There's no righteousness there in verse 3. He did not save us based on our existing righteousness, and he didn't even save us because of our future righteousness. He knew that apart from his divine intervention, we would never do anything righteous. He saved us not because of our good works. And in a book that is so full of instructions, so full of exhortations towards godly living, so full of all these commands that we're called to obey, it's really important that we don't lose sight of this, that our salvation is not based on our performance. It does not depend on our good works. He didn't save us because of works done by us in righteousness. No, he saved us, look at verse 5, according to his own mercy according to his own mercy listen it's the mercy of god it's his divine compassion on needy sinners that is the only basis for our salvation and this mercy this compassion is not just an emotion it's not just that god looks down from heaven and feels sorry for us in our mess no it's an action he entered into our mess the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared embodied in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He took on flesh. And he came here to give himself for us. Listen, this is the model for our treatment of unbelievers. Why are we to show perfect courtesy towards them? Why are we to be gentle towards them? Why are we to avoid quarreling and not speak evil of them? They may not deserve your gracious humility. They may not deserve it, but don't forget we are no better than them, and God has treated us this way. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks this rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do we tend to think and act as if somehow we had something to do with our own salvation, that we somehow met God halfway and can take credit for it? It's all of grace. It's all God's mercy. The only difference between you and me and an unbeliever who's outside the church is that God has shown us mercy. That's the only difference. God has shown us mercy. We're not more righteous. We're not smarter. We're not more valuable. We're not more deserving than anyone else outside these walls. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And how did he save us? Back in verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul is describing here the new birth, the washing of regeneration. Washing is to make clean. Regeneration is to make alive. That's what the Holy Spirit did for us. This is the new birth. We were spiritually dead before, dead in our sins and trespasses. That explains verse 3, doesn't it? People who are spiritually dead, of course they're going to be slaves to sin. But we've been made alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We're made alive. We're made clean. It is the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How are people who are dead made alive? How are people who are dirty made clean? How are people who are enemies made to be sons? Well, it's nothing that we can do for ourselves. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take a miracle to change someone like that. That's exactly what our salvation is. The Holy Spirit, who is God, does these things in us. It is he who washes us and he who makes us alive. So our salvation is not a work we do. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. He says it's the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit in us that brings to us something that Jesus died for. It's because of Christ's work on the cross that we can be made clean and we can be made alive. The grace that the Holy Spirit applies to us is grace that Jesus purchased with his blood. You see, apart from Christ, apart from his death and resurrection, we cannot experience this work of the Holy Spirit. But the Father has poured out the Spirit upon us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here realizing today that, wow, when you read verse 3, That doesn't just describe who I was. That kind of describes who I am. You may be spiritually dead inside. Perhaps you need to be made clean. You need to be made new. What I have to tell you this morning is that you don't have the power to actually make that change happen. You can't fix it. You broke it, but you can't fix it. You know, this is different than what the world tells us. The world says you can do anything you set your mind to. The world says that if you can dream it, you can do it. That there's a lot of power in positive thinking and willpower in your effort. But listen, you cannot make yourself alive. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. That's a miracle. It's something that has to be done in you. It's something that has to be done for you. It's something that has to even really be done to you. And there's no amount of intellectual effort. There's no amount of emotional exertion. And there's definitely no sort of physical action that you can do to change your own heart. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. 
How does that happen? If you sense in yourself today that you are spiritually dead, that you've not experienced this miracle that's new birth, what must you do? What, it, what hope is there for you? Because you can't fix it. In Acts chapter 16, there's a desperate man who realized that he had a great need. He was brought to an awareness that everything he had accomplished in his life, that everything he possessed, it was really worth nothing in the light of eternity. He recognized that Paul and Silas, these two ministers that were in his jail there in Philippi, he recognized they had something he didn't have. And he asked them, he said, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen, if you are spiritually dead this morning, if you need to be made clean, you need to be made alive because you're still a slave to your sin. If you recognize that need today, then I'm calling you to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us here in the book of Titus that we experience this gracious work of the Holy Spirit, that he washes us, that he renews us, and that we experience it through faith in Christ, that God the Father has poured out the Spirit upon us richly, not in a stingy way, not in a limited way, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's through faith in Christ that we experience this work of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. You must believe in Jesus Christ and trust in his gospel. Trust in him to do that miracle in you that you can't do for yourself. When we realize that our salvation is this amazing work of Trinitarian grace from beginning to end, that it is planned by the Father and accomplished by the Son and applied by the Spirit to our hearts, we wonder, okay, what's the result of this work of grace? For someone who's experienced this and, be made, and been made new, things aren't over. That's not the end of God's grace towards us. There's more. Look at the result of this grace in verse 7. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If washing and renewal is our new birth, that moment when we're made alive. Justification refers to our new status. It's a new status we have as we're standing in the grace of God. It means that despite our sin, despite our past, despite who we used to be, we are now declared righteous in God's sight. And this status comes with the astounding privilege and blessing. Because we've been justified by His grace, we have become, Paul says, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think it's really cool to compare this with chapter 2, verse 14. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus dies to save us, and we are a sort of inheritance for him. We are his possession, his treasure in that sense. So we are his inheritance. But also, as those who have been saved, we also receive an inheritance. Being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that awesome how God is glorified and we are blessed through the same work of grace? 
And this inheritance that we are promised is eternal life. It cannot be lost. It cannot be diminished. It will never run out. It is to be enjoyed for eternity. And our hopes are anchored there. Once again, Paul pulls out this word hope. We have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the same hope that we're waiting for in chapter 2, verse 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope. It's the same hope we see in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. It's hope. Our hopes are anchored in Christ and his work and the inheritance that is ours through faith in him. This is grace. This is an undeserved gift, even though we used to be the people in verse 3. Because of the love of the Father, the gracious work of the Son, the miraculous work of the Spirit in us, we are now justified, we are washed, we're made alive, and we're given the hope of eternal life and an eternal inheritance. This is a panorama, once again, of grace. It is undeserved. And this incredibly full summary of the gospel message that shows us our need for grace, it shows us God's work of grace, it shows us the result of this grace, it is this gospel, this good news that eats away and dissolves and diminishes our arrogant thoughts of self. It's this gospel that produces humility towards others. It's this gospel that erodes the self-righteous attitudes that we have towards other people. Do you remember where you came from? Do you realize what God did for us and how little we had to do with it? That's what produces humility. And this is one reason why we're going to always preach the gospel in this church and from this pulpit. I know that many of you are saved. Many of you believe in this gospel already. But we're going to keep preaching it. We know on any given Sunday there's going to be some unbelievers here. We want them to hear the good news. But we also know that there's a sanctifying power in preaching the gospel to Christians. It's the power that we need. Remember, as we saw last week, it is grace that saves us and grace that changes us. That grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live these upright, godly lives in this present age. The gospel provides the motive we need. It reveals God's goodness and his purpose for us. And the gospel brings the perspective that we need. It reminds us of where we came from and reminds us of everything that God has done for us, even though we deserve none of it. So take a good hard look at yourself this morning and consider, do you need to be reminded? Do you need to be reminded of of these commands? Submission to earthly authorities. Humility towards all people outside the church. Do you need to be reminded of who you once were apart from Christ or who you would be apart from his gracious intervention? Do you need to be reminded of the fact that he saved you not because of your good works but because of his mercy? Do you need to be reminded that it's the Holy Spirit who made you alive and made you new? You didn't have anything to do with it. Do you need to be reminded that you've been justified by grace because of Jesus' death on the cross and that your eternal life and the hope of that inheritance is all a gift? I think you do. I think I do. I think that's why this letter wasn't just for the people on the island of Crete. It's for us today as well. And if we are going to be a healthy church, 
It is essential that we demonstrate a gospel-driven humility towards outsiders. May we be a people who are so impacted by this grace and this mercy that we're humbled, that we're humbled. And may we be a people that are so excited about this work of grace that God has done in our hearts that we are eager to devote ourselves to good works. We're eager to tell other people about this gospel. Eager to see God's glory manifested in the church and in the world. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, no matter how many times we think about it, sing about it, preach about it, this gospel truly is amazing. Pray that you would strip away the, the dullness and the dimness of our own hearts as sometimes we can be so familiar with this that it loses its impact on our hearts. Lord, help us to be mindful of where we came from and who we would be apart from your grace. Pray that you would humble us when we consider how you have treated hostile sinners so that we might be motivated and encouraged and empowered to demonstrate humility towards those who don't know Christ. I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we seek to navigate really complicated times in our nation, in our community, with regard to human authority and how we're supposed to interact. Give us wisdom to discern when it is right and necessary to not comply with earthly authorities. Give us wisdom and discernment there, but I also ask that you would give us the right heart, that in those moments we determine that we must say no to man in order to say yes to God. I pray that you'd help us to do so with a spirit of humility and submission to Christ and that that would flavor everything we do, every conversation we have, everything we post on social media, every thought that we think towards others. Lord Jesus, we want you to rule not just in the world, not just in our church, but in our own hearts, in our emotions, in our attitudes, in our perspectives. Lord, if there is self-righteousness, hostility, and pride in our church, I pray that you would bring about conviction through your Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd bring about real conviction that leads to genuine repentance, godly grief over our sin, and a humble dependence on your Spirit to keep washing us. And make us little by little more and more like Jesus. And God, for those who may be dead in their sins and trespasses today, pray that you would keep them from ever thinking that their salvation could be something that they can somehow accomplish on their own. I pray they would not look at other Christians in this room and somehow think that we're just the ones who figured it out or that we must, be, we must have some good bone in our body. I pray that those who are separated from you this morning would realize Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And that you are calling them today to repent of sin and believe. What must they do to be saved? Well, there's nothing they can do. They're simply called to believe on Jesus Christ and receive from him the fullness of salvation. I pray, God, that you would continue to save sinners. Take Titus 3, 3 people and make them new and clean, justify them, give them eternal life. We know, Lord, that not only does this bring ultimate joy and blessing to us, but it's what brings glory to you, to increase the inheritance, the worship, the glory, the treasure 
for you. So we pray that you'd use this text, Lord, to continue pointing us into your will and fashioning us into the image of Christ. Amen.